Okay, so I presume everyone has the sheets from last time. Um, I'm not sure I have that many spare. Yeah. Uh, let me just check. Oh, okay. Hey, but it's the only sheet I've given out, so... Okay. Um... There may be a few sources missing from that one, because I think it's an old copy, but in any case, okay. Um, Okay, so where we left off last time, if you remember, we were talking about Rifka's reaction. We were speaking, uh, and we were in the middle of the source um, from source number, number, there's no number. Um, Page number seven, Jordan Peterson. And we were talking specifically about what Jordan, so the, 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 the um, topic, the theme that we were looking at was the idea of process and the instant. Um, if you remember, and I'll just very, very briefly give you a synopsis of what we've been doing. We've been looking at the idea of Yitzhak. We've been talking about the notion of... Um, the notion of, of what it is to live in a family where, where the father, okay, is somebody who's gone through some kind of trauma. Um, and what does that, in, in what sense does that impact the family? We've spoken about the notion of existentialism. We talked about it from a historical perspective where the, where the school of existentialism comes up historically as a philosophical movement and why it comes up and how it was a reaction in many ways to war, okay, how it was a reaction to the idea of, 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 of the horrors that the people saw in the Second World War and this, this kind of being faced with one's mortality and almost the, um, um, being faced with the absurdity of existence. That really is kind of what existentialism, existentialism as a school of philosophical thought represents, the absurdity of existence. And what does that mean in the sense of how does one move forward from there? And what the existentialist school, school essentially talks about is the idea of finding meaning, that, every, that a human being is a meaning-seeking animal. That also, by the way, obviously, Viktor Frankl talks about. And that is what man does. He imposes meaning on the structures of his existence in order to elevate himself from this existential angst in which he's found himself. Um, Someone asked me in the week, sent me a a message in the week, and I think the question, I want to bring it up because I think it's a very important question, though I don't think there's there's an an answer I can give you standing on one foot, and therefore I'm not going to give you an answer standing on one foot, but I do want to bring it up because I think it's important. She asked me the question of, does that mean therefore that really all we're doing is imposing subjective meaning onto our existence but there isn't necessarily any objective meaning that exists in the universe right so does everyone get the question okay so essentially the answer to that is in the in the secular existential um, school of thought the answer would be yes Okay, um, and that, by the way, is why existentialism leads to, for example, postmodern thinkers such as Derrida and various other thinkers who talk about this idea of multiple interpretations. Well, they talk about the text, but multiple interpretations of reality, which ultimately leads to what we know today as postmodernism, which is that anything goes, right? Everyone can have their own interpretation of reality. There's no objective meaning, there's no objective truth, and everyone's subjective meaning is what exists in the world, and no one, no one 
person's interpretation should take priority or precedent over anybody else's interpretation. So that's one way of understanding existentialism. But what I want us to focus on, and this is really where we've been going with it, is I want us to look at what, what's called re religious existentialism. Or I would even call it in the corollary to religious existentialism is religious postmodernism. Okay? And what that means is... And I would argue that in many ways this is Rivka. Rivka really represents, and this is what we've been talking about, Rivka represents what, what this religious existentialism is, and that is that, number one, we need to be aware of our mortality. Okay, we need to, and I was thinking about this in the car on the way here. I, I, suddenly this question came into my head, and I, I'll throw it out to you because maybe it's something we can all think about, right? As I was driving here, I thought to myself, what would happen if tomorrow someone came down or someone invented, okay, some kind of pill that we could take that meant we would become immortal, that we would live forever, okay, that we would know we would never die? Ouch. Okay, so, um, and what would, how would that change the way in which we live our lives? Right, just think about it for one second. Can we actually just think about it for one second? How would that change? Is that for everyone? For everybody. For everybody. How would that What was that? So, so that's, the, uh, that's the next question that jumped into my head, Karen. The next question was, does, does that pill mean that I get older or does it mean I stay as I am? Right? And then what age would you choose to stay as you are? Okay, these are all uh, theoretical questions that we're not going to get into today. Yeah, well, uh, as far as I know, they're theoretical. Um, and therefore, uh, 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 and so my question is exactly, this is where the existential angst comes from. It comes from being faced with death, right? As in, we all know, and in many ways, when we lead, when we lead the way in which we lead our lives is there's always a sense of anxiety, whether subconscious or conscious, right, about our impending end. Although we haven't looked at him in depth, depth, we have to go back to him, and we will do at some point, okay? Um, we looked at Yitzchak, we spoke about Yitzchak being in many ways, Yitzchak kind of has one foot in chaos, one foot in order, okay? He's, there's, 
he's, he's very complex, okay? We looked at Aesop, we spoke about one reaction to the existential angst being this notion of hedonism or living for the moment, okay? Um, or immediate gratification, whatever you want to, however you want to say, animalistic, so to speak. And even the description of Aesop in the text itself is a very animalistic description, okay? That is, that represents one way of reacting, reacting or responding to my existential angst. And the final person we've been looking at is, is Rivka. And I really think Rivka lends to us what I would term, again, and, and again, this is one response, is religious existentialism. What do I mean by that? So what we looked at when we saw Rivka is um, we saw that she receives a prophecy from God. But what's fascinating about the prophecy is that the prophecy itself is ambiguous, meaning if one looks at it, and, and we brought in all the classic commentators who talk about this, okay, we're well, in particular, but there were others as well, they speak about the idea that the text is very unclear, purposely unclear. And remember, we spoke about, right at the beginning, two ways in which we can look at a text or we can interpret text. One way would be to interpret it, you know, in the very kind of Bible critic way, which we'd say, well, any ambiguity is because there were many different authors and no one knew what they were doing and there was a whole load of chaos. And the other way is to look at it in a religious fundamentalist way, and that is to say, well, you know, any kind of ambiguity on the text or contradiction that happens is simply because we are limited as human beings. We don't understand what what the divine uh, message is, and therefore we need to try as much as possible to um, to uh, make order, okay, out of the chaos or out of the contradictions. And I said that in some ways where we're going to sit, when we're looking at the text, is in the middle, in the sense that what we want to do is to say when there's an ambiguity, sometimes, not always, okay, sometimes there's a way of um, bringing the contradictions together, but when there's an ambiguity, sometimes that ambiguity is purposeful. And actually the message itself is the, the, the enigma. The message itself is the ambiguity in the text. Okay, and I think specifically here, in the in the case of Rifka, and again we've we've developed this idea, is that the ambiguity of the of the prophecy is purposely there in order to lend an agency to Rifka. Meaning what? Meaning, and again we developed this much more. We looked at, if you remember, we looked at a source from Reasoning and Revelation, and, and who who are very well known postmodern thinkers who speak about the idea that Revelation today is interpretation of the text. Okay, and what and, and we took that kind of understanding and, and said in many ways this is exactly what Rifka has been given by God. A divine revelation that needs, okay, whose imperative is interpretation. Meaning it wasn't a divine revelation that was totally clear. Okay, it was a divine revelation in which God responds to Rivka's existential crisis and says to her, in response to your existential crisis, I want you to take agency. I want you to recognize you have choice. I want you to know that you have purpose in your life. And that purpose is going to lend you a way to deal with all those questions, all those existential questions that hover above you, okay? So that, and, and, and therefore, in many ways, what she does is, and, and everything that she does after this, okay, is a response to that prophecy. Does she share that prophecy with Yitzchak? And we're going to get to that. The answer is, it's almost certainly no, right? Which in itself is, is maybe problematic, but reminds us, and here, here I want to take another side step for a second and just tell you about something else I was thinking about this week. Um, and it reminds us of someone else who doesn't share um, a divine message with their wife. And that is Sarah, and that is Abraham. If you remember last year when we spoke about the fact that why does Sarah laugh? And by the way, I saw a few people who had written about this recently, but I don't think any of them 
Yeah, it wasn't spot on to what we were speaking about. And I want to just reiterate what we said because I think it's really important and it's specifically important when we look at Rifka because there's a lot of parallels between Rifka and Abraham. Um, if you remember, when Sar- after the angels come, which is what we just read this week, right? After the angels come and they say to Abraham, they tell Abraham all the various messages and, and then one of the messages they give is that he's going to have a son and, and Sarah will repent and she says and she laughs. And God then comes to Abraham and says, why is Sarah laughing? And in many ways, very often, where the, the classic way of understanding that is a criticism to who? Sarah. To Sarah. But really, it's a criticism to Abraham. Why? Because what is God saying to Abraham? Why didn't you share? Why doesn't she know? I already told you this a few weeks ago, but we don't know exactly how long it was, right? But it was certainly more than a few days because he's done Brit Mila in the meantime and everything else, right? So why haven't you told your husband that massive piece of sorry, your wife, sorry, that massive piece of news that she's gonna be a mother and you're gonna be a father and, and Ishmael is not and everything, your whole world's been turned upside down. This is this is huge. And you haven't shared that with your covenantal partner. You haven't told her, right? So the criticism here is less on Sarah laughing, because a natural response to being a mother at that age is to laugh, but more criticism of Abraham not sharing with his covenantal partner. And then it's obviously not a surprise that the story, that narrative that comes immediately after that is where God comes down and shares with Abraham what he's going to do with Stom. And even more than that, it's probably one of the only times that we see in the Torah text that God deliberates. Should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? Why is he deliberating? Because he knows that nothing's going to change. He knows that he's going to destroy Stom no matter what. Abraham's not going to change his mind. So his deliberation is, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? And why does he choose to tell Abraham? Because he chooses to show Abraham what it is to live in a covenantal relationship. A covenantal relationship means that I share with my partner, even though my partner may not be able to fix it's all, okay? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, you know, that whole thing, you don't need to fix it, you just need to listen, right? That's, that's, that's exactly what God is, is teaching, right? Covenantal partner means to share, even if you're not necessarily going to be able to change the terms of reality, okay? Conditions of reality. And so, that, that is just by the by, but it's not by the by, because again, as I said to you, there's many, many parallels between Rivka and Abraham. Number one, textually, if you look uh, hermeneutically, that there's a lot of parallels in the text itself, where she leaves her family, it's the same language that's used for Abraham in Veslacha. Okay, there's, and they're both Anshei Chesed, okay, whatever, there's, there's many, many parallels between the two, but then I was just thinking, I actually was writing a Torah for a bar mitzvah, I'm, go, uh, I'm speaking at, uh, over Shabbat, and one of the, the to bar mitzvah girl, and one of the things I wanted to talk to her about was exactly what we've been looking at, which is this idea of what does it mean, what does lech lecha mean, what we looked at last year, right? What does lech lecha, what does it mean to leave your house, but on the other hand, you know, is that what we want to teach our children, to leave everything behind? If you don't like something, to just up and leave, and leave your family, and leave your tradition, and leave your nation, and leave your homeland, right? On the one hand, and again, how do Chazal get round that? They get round that by making Terach into an idol worshiper. How do they get round Rivka leaving all her family? They make Laban into an evil person. Meaning, if the people you are surrounded by are immoral, then of course you should leave. But in reality, okay, Abraham's father is not so bad. In fact, if one looks at the shot, Terach turns out to be quite a good guy. 
So therefore, we have to ask ourselves the question, why or how is Abraham leaving his father such a justified action? Do we really want to teach that to our children? Okay, and the answer is, and this is really the key, the answer is that he doesn't leave everything behind. Because what he does is, and we know already, that Terach is the one that began the journey to Eretz Canaan, and Abraham is the one who continues the journey to Eretz Canaan. And in essence, the Lech Lecha call to Abraham is less of a call to absolutely leave everything behind, but more of a call to take what you have been taught, but make it your own, right? It's to conform, because for the sake of conformity, means that I have no inner sense of self. Okay, that's what it means. And to live without an inner sense of self means to live an inauthentic life. And to live an inauthentic life is perhaps one of the worst things that man can do. And therefore what God says, and his lechah call to Abraham is a call to every single Jew at every single time, is to begin the journey for yourself, make it your own. It reminds that remember we spoke about opening the letter or, clo- or keeping the letter closed, right? In some ways, tradition is a letter that's passed from one generation to the next. And the biggest question is, do I just pass the letter on without opening it, without touching it, ever keeping everything as it is? Or do I open the letter? When I open the letter, do I make changes? Do I see things don't necessarily fit? Do I try to amend things and then pass it on? To the, and with each each of those two choices, there are dangers and there are challenges. But the question is, which one are we going to choose? And essentially, in many ways, the lechacha call is the call to open the letter. Okay? It's the call to, yes, sometimes we have to make changes to make it our own. And then I was thinking about, obviously, because the Prasha is next, this week's Prasha, not lechacha, so I had to make it connect somehow. Um, I was thinking about Rivka. And all of a sudden, I suddenly thought about the fact that obviously there's many parallels between Rivka and other ones, but suddenly it just, and I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who never thought about it before, and maybe all of you have thought about it, okay? But there is something really profound in the sense that the, the act that Rivka does, what, what, where she learned that from? Exactly, right? right? What she does with Yitzchak, with Yaakov, and all this manipulation, and the cheating, and the this, and the hiding, and that, you know, this is Rivka, the woman of Chesed, she goes out, she feeds the cat, she's, you know, should we put her on this pedestal? She is, and she is, and yet, she is, she has business acumen, she knows what she's doing, she understands the rules for survival, she knows how to manipulate a situation, where she learned that from? From home. Clearly, she's learned that from Lavana. And so in many ways, she does exactly what Abraham does too. She leaves her family, she leaves and she ups and she moves and she follows the divine call, but yet she takes something of her family with her. Okay? She doesn't just leave everything behind. And one can argue, and again, I don't want to get now into, because we're going to spend a long time on this, but I don't want to get into the ethical um, the ethical justification of what she does, or, or maybe not even justification, the ethical question of what she does, whether it's good or not. But, let, but, but she believes that she's, she's doing what God asked her to do. She believes that she's doing the right thing here. And therefore what she's done is she's taken something that was deemed or seen by her to be immoral. And she's used it, changed it, transformed it into using it for the good. Okay? And that is, again, that to me is Rivka's Lech Lecha journey. 
Okay, that is her taking something from her past and bringing it with her and using it in the present and for the future. Okay, so that's just by the by. I want to come back now to Jordan Peterson. If you remember, we moved from this idea of, the, of Rivka being this, the person to respond in, in, in a religious existentialism. That is what? That is to take, to understand, that to create meaning in our life. I, I, by the way, I began with a question. I never answered it. Someone asked me the question, does it mean that we're just imposing meaning, right? Um, uh, onto our lives almost arbitrarily, right? As in, it's arbitrary meaning, doesn't, which is something we've created. And the answer is that the religious existentialism says, no, meaning is imposed to us by, by God, right? We interpret it. We, are, we still have the act of interpretation, right? But there is some objective meaning that exists in the world, Okay? So, and again, it's standing on one foot, meaning it's much, much more complex than that. But that's just one, just to respond to that. Um, then we moved on to the second theme I want to look at. And that is the theme of the instant and process, which we already saw many, many, many times much earlier, uh, beginning with Adam and Chava, Kain and Hevel, many, many other examples, okay, of this idea of what it is to live in this world. And we spoke about when Adam and Chava were thrown out of Gan Eden, they were thrown into a world of process of waiting, of of, of sacrifice, okay, and we spoke about the idea, and, and, and Jordan Peterson speaks about this idea, that sacrifice is essentially the idea of giving something up in the now for something in the future, okay, that's where we left off last time, that's what sacrifice is, and the, what, in ancient times when we gave, when we sacrificed, it was a very, we acted out the idea, it was a concept that we acted out, so when we sacrifice, we're acting out the idea that we're giving up something today for the long-term gain, okay, um, as time went on, we, we stopped acting it out and we conceptually understood it and therefore we, we act it out in our actions rather than physically acting out as a, as a tekas, as a ceremony. We act it out in our actions or we, concept, we, we kind of um, integrate the concept into our being, okay? And that, by the way, is also the notion that we spoke last time about tefillah. Tefillah takes over from the idea of sacrifice. Tefillah is, again, the idea of the meditative act that brings to the fore a consciousness of the long term, okay, a consciousness of what person do I want to be in the future and how am I going to go about being such a person, what acts am I going to do, okay, the big picture, okay, that's what Tefillah essentially um, is, so I want to come back to Jordan Peterson, we were on page eight in the middle, I'm actually just, I'm going to go, I'm going to take a step back. Where did you put where we were up to? Yeah. Where is it? Ah, oh, brilliant. Okay. So I'm going to take, I'm just going to read the final paragraph that we finished off last week again. Okay. People watch. It's four lines down. Has everyone got it? Okay. People watch the successful succeed and the unsuccessful fail for thousands and thousands of years. We thought it over and draw a conclusion. The successful among us delay gratification. The successful among us bargain with the future. A great idea begins to emerge, taking ever more clearly articulated form in ever more clearly articulated stories. What's the difference between the successful and the unsuccessful? The successful sacrifice, okay? If the world you are seeing is not the world you want, therefore it's time to examine your values. It's time to rid yourself of your current presuppositions. It's time to let go. It might even be time to sacrifice what you love best 
so that you can become who you might become instead of staying who you are. Okay, so again, that is exactly the idea that we've been talking about, okay, this notion of sacrifice. That's the person who wishes to alleviate suffering, who wishes to rectify the flaws in being, who wants to bring about the best of all possible futures, who wants to create heaven on earth, will make the greatest of sacrifices of self and child, of everything that is loved, to live a life aimed at the good. He will forego expediency. He will pursue the path of ultimate meaning, and he will, in that manner, bring salvation to the ever-desperate world. Okay? In essence, what, what, what Peterson is saying here is that redemption, or bringing, tikkun olam, let's put it in, 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 in Jewish language, right? The notion of tikkun olam requires me Okay, to sacrifice. That is part and parcel of tikkun olam. It means sacrificing my immediate gratification or something that I can achieve now in the present for a long-term aim. Okay, you may find that if you attend to these moral obligations once you have placed them, make the world better at the top of your value hierarchy, you experience ever deepening meaning. It is not bliss. It's not happiness. It's something more like atonement for the criminal fact of your fractured and damaged being. Okay, it's, it sounds very pessimistic. Okay, it does. It does. Um, it sounds very pessimistic, and yet that there's then what he's bringing here is the existential message, which is, is exactly this. This is this. His response here is an existent comes from the place of existentialism. Okay, it's a payment of the debt you owe for the insane and horrible miracle of your existence. They even listen to his language, right? The insane and horrible miracle of your existence, right? It's how you remember the Holocaust course is how you make amends for the pathology of history. It's adoption of the responsibility for being a potential denizen of hell. It is willingness to serve as an angel of paradise. Again, if you, you notice all the time, there's these dialecticals that he's bringing in here, right? And it, I think that dialectical sentiment is very much expressive of, 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 of religious existentialism. Now, one of the most famous religious existentialists, although some argue that he only became much later in his life, is who? <clears throat> Rav Soloveitchik, okay? Rav Soloveitchik, not at the beginning of his life, not in halachic man and halachic minds, and that was very neo-Kantian, but much later in his life, okay, when he wrote The Lonely Man of Faith, and um, even at the time when he wrote, um, you see it also in... Um, in Kolda uh, di Dofek, okay, there's, there's a, Rav Soloveitchik is very, very much has, has intonations of, of existentialism in his writing. And one of the things that characterizes Rav Soloveitchik's works is this notion of the dialectic. Okay, for Rav Soloveitchik, those of you that know Adam 1 and Adam 2, okay, Rav Soloveitchik, it's always this idea of the religious person is constantly um, existing in a dialect, right? He's never necessarily in one place or the other. He's almost swinging between two different positions all the time. That that very much is Rav Soloveitchik. And that is expressive and, 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 and ironically, right, and the Havdil, right, to Jordan Peterson, although also Jordan Peterson, not, not, he's not Jewish, right, but, but a brilliant mind. Um, he, he hear also what you hear and what he writes is very much this dialectical notion of, of you know, on the one hand, the miracle of existence, on the other hand, the, 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 the terrible um, angst of, of, of being an, uh, an animal in the world, right, all the time moving between these two things. And, and that, to me, by the way, is very much what we see in Yitzchak. Right? Yitzchak is that personality that on the one hand he has these moments of the instant of living for the moment. Right? When he right? I mean, either the guy's not very clever, right? Or he 
that part of the survivor instinct, the trauma, is that <gasps> I have to live for the moment, right? What does it mean, Masachah Kishtar? What am I talking about? I'm talking about the event when they go down and they're in Gra with Avimelech, and he's told everybody that, that Rivka is his sister in order for him to survive, and he takes uh, Rivka outside, and they have some kind of sexual encounter in public, everyone can see, right? So obviously they're not brother and sister, okay? And, and that puts not just Rivka's life at risk, but his own life at risk. What prompts him to do such an act? And this is my argument. My argument is that, that Yitzchak is living on the edge, right? That there's a part of him as being a, a, a survivor of trauma, living on the edge. And yet, what does he do as a tikkun for that? What's his tikkun for that moment of... Of failure is what is what's the what's the text that comes immediately after that? Does anyone remember? He goes and he digs the wells, right? We had that whole. Do you remember we spent ages last year on it, right? We had that whole massive. That's basically, if, in fact, if you look at Yitzchak's life, that's the core of the narrative of Yitzchak is the digging and the redigging and the digging and the redigging of these wells. And I'm not going to get into it now because those who were in the course last year will remember we spent a long time on it. But why does he go and rethink the wells of his father? Because he is making a statement. He recognizes that he failed. And he is making a statement and saying that I am going to sacrifice today for tomorrow. Meaning I realize that my legacy is to live out my father's legacy. Is to redig the wells of my father. Is to, re, to, 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 to reestablish what my father brought down to this world and to rename them. Okay, and then, and then it continues, and there's a whole element there where he, for the first time, he names a well from his own, um, um, he, like, as in he doesn't name a well after his father, right? He's innovative in bringing a name to the well, and the well, the name that he brings is Rechavah, and we've spoken about this, right? The widening of the spaces and everything else. And then, by the way, immediately after that, the first time ever in Yitzhak's life, he sacrifices. Okay, and again, that's got very much, I think, a lot to do with this idea of recognizing what it is to sacrifice, which is exactly what he learned after this slip that he had in Gra, and also has to do with the fact that the Mizbeach for, for Abraham has obviously very traumatic um, uh, feelings, right? That he, okay, so there's a lot here, but, but what I'm saying is exactly this idea that this constant, this tension, this dialectical swing between, on the one hand, you know, the miracle of being and bringing meaning to our life and, and being Adam, you know, Adam one and, oh, hello, um, and all of those things. And the other side of, of being kind of very, that kind of melancholy of, oh my goodness, what does it mean to be, you know, a mortal being in this universe, all the time swinging between the two. And Yitzhak to me represents that swing very, very, very much. Okay? Okay, let's just finish um, Peterson. Expedient that's hiding all the skeletons in the closet, that's covering the blood you just spilled with the carpet, that's avoiding responsibility. It's cowardly and shallow and wrong. It's wrong because mere expedience multiplied by many repetitions produces the character of a demon. It's wrong because expedience merely transfers the curse on your head to someone else or to your future self. Okay, and again, it's very interesting to your future self that if you're an expedient person, you don't think about, okay, in a manner that will make your future and the future generally worse instead of better. To have meaning in your life is better than to have what you want. I'm going to repeat that sentence because I think it is, it should be written for the, this generation above the walls of the school, right? Okay, 
To have meaning in your life is better than to have what you want. Because you may neither know what you want nor what you truly need. Meaning is something that comes upon you of its own accord. You can set up the preconditions, you can follow meaning when it manifests itself, but you cannot simply produce it as an act of will. What is expedient only works for the moment. It's immediate, impulsive, and limited. What is meaningful by contrast is the organization of what would otherwise merely be expedient into a symphony of being. Meaning is the ultimate balance between, on the one hand, the chaos of transformation and possibility, and on the other hand, the discipline of pristine order, whose purpose is to produce out of the attendant chaos a new order that will be even more immaculate and capable of bringing forth a still more balanced and productive chaos and order. Meaning is the way, the path of life more abundant, the place you live when you are guided by love and speaking truth, and when nothing you want or could possibly want takes precedent over precisely that. Do what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Okay, and I think that is a powerful, what he says here, and by the way, I really recommend reading the whole, reading the whole book, but specifically reading the whole chapter, right? <laughs> So if you think if you think this is bad, you should listen to his lectures on the Bible online. Oh my goodness! Like firstly, they're two two and a half hours every lecture, and he brings in. It's just, I mean, mind blowing. So this this is like Bukatan, as they say, right? Um, so so really, what what we're saying here is okay. And, and again, we're going to come back to this, and we're going to come back to this theme because it comes up again and again and again throughout Sefer Bereshit. And I think it is one of, in my mind, it is one of the main two two massive themes in Bereshit that keep repeating themselves all the time. One is the idea of order and chaos, okay, which as we see from the beginning when God creates order out of the chaos, and then it continues the whole way through. And the other is this idea of the expedient versus meaningful, okay, which comes up again and again and again. And why these two things? Because in my mind, these two things are the core, at the core of human existence, and not just the religious person. <clears throat> Obviously, it manifests itself even more so, I would say, in the religious personality. But I think it's at the core of human existence, right? And which is why it's in Sefer Bereshit, because Sefer Bereshit is not a religious book. It's a religious book in the sense that it's our religious Torah, but it's not a religious, it's not a story about a religious person or being or nation that only begins well it begins with Abraham but it really only begins when we get the Torah and Sefer Shmot right so all of so what I'm saying to you is that all of these narratives are touching on core truths about humanity okay and this is one of the core truths and we see it we see it very much in and again what I say with the stories here is that sometimes the stories um, lend us a window into the complexity of humanity, and at other times, the stories create prototypes. Okay, and the prototypes are also lending us a window into humanity, but the prototypes are there in order to teach us certain messages. So, Asav and Yaakov, in many ways, are prototypes, and then Yaakov takes on elements of Esau, and that's where the complexity begins, and that's what we're going to look at now. So we're moving now on to the second major narrative, which we're going to now share together. So I want us to go back to source number one. Before we go any further, right, we can't develop any more themes until we've looked at the, the text itself. So I want us to go back to source not number one, source number two. Okay, and here what we're going to do is 
We're going to read the text inside. We're going to try and understand at least just the pshat, right? The basic text. Try to just get a grip and understand what it's talking about. And once we've read the text, we're then going to do as we've been doing till now. We're going to touch on two or three themes that come out from the text itself. So I want to just begin... Look at the text. You've got the English translation and the Hebrew. And let's see what's happening in this story. This is the classic story, okay, of um, of the deception scene, okay, of the scene of deception. And in the story, what, we, what we're going to see is, and, and by the way, the fact that we've also... We've, we've put it already into context. We've seen what's happened. We've seen the birthright so-called having been sold already to Esav. Okay, we've seen Rivka getting this nevuah, this prophecy from God. But, but the context is all there. Okay, but I think the context produces even greater questions because the, one of the major questions, now that we know the context, that, that, that Yaakov basically bought the birthright already from Esav, the question here is then, why does he go, why does he follow through on this whole deception? Meaning if he knows that Asab sold him the birthright, right, why does he need to go now and deceive his father in order to get it? Okay, I think that's a major question, which, I, by the way, I don't have an answer to. I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know if that's telling us something about Yaakov's personality, if that's telling us something about Yaakov's um, subservience to Rivka, Okay, if maybe something happens along the way, I don't know, right? But something here doesn't sit right because we know that he already bought, he already bought the birthright, so to speak, from Aesop, right? So I'm saying, one, let's have a look at the text and really try and see what's going on. Does anyone else know? So it's another question. I don't know. Only, but, but surely that should be enough. And surely, and, and if that's the case, why does he not say to his mother, listen... Asaph sold me his birthright. I don't need to go and do this. Okay. Again, what I see here, just 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 to, to tell you what's in my head here, is a parallel between Yitzchak at the Akedah and and Yaakov. But here, and, and because Rivka, we've already said, there's a massive parallel between Rivka and Abraham. Okay. Abraham, Yitzchak seems to be this passive um, agent that follows his father through and sits on the zvech ready ready to be sacrificed in a very literal way. And and to me, I see Rivka playing the role of Abraham, almost, again, almost putting her son on the Mizbeach, and obviously in a much more metaphorical sense, right? But what we see is that this episode, okay, is um, in, instrumental in every element of Yaakov's life afterwards. It constantly comes back to haunt him. So there is a kind of sacrifice having been made here, in many ways. Um, and, and Yaakov's the passive player in the same way that Yitzchak was at the Akedah. And what that tells, I don't know. Okay, I don't know what meaning to take out from that. But I can see a parallel there. Um, Right, so so it's interesting because I tell you who discusses it at length in their book is Nahum Sana. Nahum Sana has a book um, on Red Shakes. He's a very well-known um, biblical writer, but he's also an anthropologist, like, meaning he, he's looked into all the ancient cultures that happened at the time, and he writes a book of parallel in what happens in the Torah um, with, with all the other cultures. Um, you know, in the more um, orthodox circles, he was kind of said to be... I know a heretic, but certainly 
a bit out there. But his book is definitely worth looking at if you're interested, because there he talks he, at length, he talks about the idea of what the birthright meant in ancient times, and can one sell, could one sell the birthright? And his conclusion is that not necessarily, so may, that may be the case, okay? Um, it's, in, it's an interesting question. I, d I don't know what the answer is. Another question is, what is the power of a blessing? In other words, why do they need that the blessing also? So I think, so, so again, this is what, what we're going to try and, and knock out here, because I, I think there's two things going on. I think there's, there's the blessings, that each son could get, but I also, but there's there's the blessings and then there's the bchorah, the, the birthright, which is different. They're different, okay? What is the power of, you know, why do they need it so much? So they believed very much in the in the idea of the blessing, for sure, yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, we see it the whole way through Sefer Breshit. Okay, even when Hashem to the very first talks to Abraham, he says to him, you will be blessed, the nations earth will be blessed you, that you're right. There's a very strong message at the so to be blessed is a very important thing. Yaakov, again, if you remember when he has the struggle with the angel, which again we're going to look at in depth, he won't let the angel go until what? Until he gets a blessing. There's, you're right, there's something very, very important here about a blessing. But what I want to say is that there's also, and then this is what we're going to try and look at here, is that there, that maybe in fact what Yaakov ends up getting, sorry, yeah, what Yaakov ends up getting from Yitzchak is not the birthright. It's the blessing that he would have given to, to, to Asaph, which is not necessarily a birthright. And maybe, and again, this is, this is many, there's many commentators, more modern, but many commentators, if you look at the Yeshiva Haaretzi on web, website, a lot of the, I think, Rav Yaakov, maybe there are many, many people there talk about this idea um, that if we look at the text very carefully, okay, that in fact, Yaakov, Yitzchak does not give, Yitzchak was always going to give Yaakov the birthright. It was always going to be his. Because he what the what he gives him when he deceives him is not the birthright. The birthright is what he gives him before he leaves to go to Lavan. So therefore, and again then my, then the biggest then the big question is, what was the point in all of that? What was the point? So we could argue maybe Rifka thought that Yitzhak would. Really at the bottom of all of this, to me, is a story about a massive lack of communication between partners, right? No, I, I mean that. I don't mean that in a in a in a. I mean it sounds it sounds almost funny, but it but really there's something fundamental here. And and again, I this goes. Also, the to, to his mother. The he's not going to tell for sure. About his mother. For sure, for sure. There's a lack of communication in this family. And again, this goes back to everything that we've been looking at: a family that lives in terror or with with severe existential angst can it function properly and that really is and, and again I think that's very much the, the basis here and I don't know I, I don't know I, I think it's a lot to think about I think it needs a lot a lot of thought much more than I've given it for sure um, it, it needs a lot of thought and it needs a lot of thought also really focusing in and zoning in on the text itself because I think in the text itself there is a lot that we're not even picking up on right but let anyway let's jump into the text Keep saying that. Okay, so we've already spoken about this idea that Yitzchak's eyes were getting dim, and again, what does that even mean? And we've seen many commentators who speak about the idea that, that the, 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 the other places, by the way, that we see this 
phrase is with Eli and his sons. Okay, very often when a father's eyes are dimmed or get lighter, okay, there's almost an expression of the idea of not being aware of the moral conduct of his children or, or not being open or not seeing properly what he's meant to see, okay? Um, okay, so again, what we see is this intonation of death that kind of lingers there. Okay, I'm, I, he says, I'm getting old, I don't know when I'm going to die. Okay, he says to his son, to Esav, okay, go out. Take, you know, take all your, take all your instruments, right, and go out and hunt for me a something to eat, an animal, okay? Okay, again, okay, we see his recalling the fact that he's going to die, and he says, go and, and, and bring me a shahavti. Now, again, that it can be. It can just mean which I love, because in the past can be used as the present as well. But I saw a, a beautiful commentary. I can't remember who wrote it that said that maybe, okay, the fact that ever since, and we spoke about this last time, that ever since Yaakov sold, or Yaakov bought the birthright from Esav, Yaakov is the one that now provides for the family, because the birthright literally meant to be the person that there was a responsibility to bring food to the family. And ever since he sold it to Yaakov, Yaakov's the one that makes his stews, okay? But he doesn't, um, he doesn't anymore go out and hunt, meaning that Yitzhak doesn't get the meat. He doesn't get that raw meat that he used to love, okay? And therefore, he says, I'm going to die. I want, I want my final meal, right? I want my final barbecue, whatever you want to call it, right? I want that raw meat. That's what I want again. Okay, I've had enough of, of, of Yaakov's vegetarian stews, okay? I want my meat, all right? Um, and, 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 and that's what, yeah, and that's what, essentially, that's what he asks of Esav. Okay, and here we have, and again, you can, this is really written in very much in this kind of real, almost uh, soap opera, Lahavdil, right? Obviously, Alfei Alafima, but uh, kind of like she's heard what happens and she's getting busy now, okay? Listen, she says to Yaakov, I've heard your brother talking, my, your, your father talking to your brother. I've heard him, this is what I heard him say. I heard him to go and bring, go and hunt and bring me, you know, these nice desirable things, again, even the word here, these, these desirable, is very, there's a, there's a kind of an immediate gratification feel to it, right? I, this is what I desire now. I'm going to die, I want my last meal. I want something that I want. He didn't die for many years. He didn't die for many, many years afterwards, which again is very, very interesting. Okay, that's why I'm saying to you, there's always, there is existing within Yitzhak this, this, this very um, acute sense of his mortality, which is always, always there, okay? Now, again, I want us to focus in here on how she speaks to Yaakov. She says to him, now listen, my son, listen, now my son, listen to my voice. Shema Bekoli. What does this remind us of? Hashem telling Abraham to listen to the call of Sarah, okay? And, and again, to me, it's there, right? 
There's something about this idea of authority, right? I know what is best. I am telling you, this is what you need to do, okay? It's not even just listen to my voice, but listen to my voice that is commanding you. agree with you, but the question is who for? Is it for the reader or is it for Yaakov? Or is it for Rivka? And I think maybe it's for all of us. Because, and again, you know, when I used to teach this many, many years ago, when I used to teach this to um, oh, sorry, I thought it was mine, I was about to put it down. <laughs> to uh, my mind somewhere else, I'm like, um, to, to year off students. And I use this, you know, very often when we were learning, this is a very difficult text to grapple with. I think even at 18, right, it's, it's, it's really, it's a text that, you know, it's the basis of our nation and, and it's a text that questions every ethical presupposition that we kind of found ourselves on, right? Um, but one of the things I always said to them was, I want you to think for a second about Rivka and where she's coming from. And I think this is exactly what you're touching on, Shana, because I think it's the key here. Rivka's working on precedent. And what? who is her precedent? Sarah. Sarah is her precedent. And what does she know about Sarah? Sarah did something which seemingly is very unethical. She sent Hagar away to die with her son in the desert. And why does she do that? Because she, be, to protect Yitzhak, because she believed, because God, God explicitly told Abraham that her voice is the voice of pragmatism, and that pragmatism is what needs to be done right at that moment in order to preserve the Brit. And last year we spoke about this at length. Right, this idea of survival. And I said, we're living it today. Okay, today, this morning, rockets from this north, rockets from the south, right? What does one do? Kids, you know, I heard on the radio yesterday on Galatz, they were interviewing, what's his name, the Arab MK, yeah. And he was, you know, he kept saying again and again and again, I see the face of the other, I see the suffering children, I see this, like, you don't see it, I see the face of the other. Again, I, I don't want to get into to, to, to his particular personality and, and belief system, but one of the things that it, it really made me think about is exactly this idea, right, that we are always trying to manage, right, this very, very difficult balance between, on the one hand, maintaining our survival as a nation, Right? And on the other hand, wanting to be the most moral, ethical people that we can possibly be. And they don't always go hand in hand. Very often, more often than not, they don't. And in the case of Sarah and Abraham, you have Abraham, by the way, this is also why we talk about the Pasha, Pasha Chaye Sarah, the whole of the Pasha, even though it's called the life of Sarah, is about what? Her death. She dies at the beginning and then Abraham goes, does a whole load of things, right? He 
buys a plot of land and he specifically buys a plot of land so that he has a foothold in the land. He um, finds a wife for, for Yitzhak from far away, not from someone near, but brings someone to him so that he isn't influenced by any outside influences and he remains in the land where he's got to be, to be the second generation that continue. Okay, we spoke about Yitzhak being bound. That is, continues in that way, okay, he's bound to being in the land and restrained to being in the land. Yeah, Abraham understands that, which is why he brings him a wife from far away, okay? Number three, he remarries in order to be what God wants him to be, which is the father of many nations. He remarries Keturah, which again, we spoke last time, maybe Hagar, okay? And he has many children. And what does he do? He sends away the children with many gifts, but he sends them away right? Which is exactly all those three things that that Abraham does in Parsha Chayet Sarah is called Chayet Sarah because he is living out the legacy of Sarah. Sarah was the pragmatist for all intents and purposes. She was the one that saw the long term. She understood that things had to be sacrificed. She understood that sometimes it meant doing what we see was seemingly unethical in a specific situation in order to gain the, the survival of the nation. She understood all these things. She was not, she, well, Avram could open his tent. She was the bodyguard. She stood there and made sure that everything was the way it should be. Right? Abraham could be Abraham because he had Sarah. And after Sarah dies, he takes on the role of um, Sarah. He takes on her role. He becomes and integrates his personality with Sarah's personality. Okay? That is the precedent. That is the the role model. Okay, or the, the person that, that, that Rivka molds herself on. She has the precedent she stands with is Sarah. Okay? And therefore, Shashana, to go back to what you said, I think that the text is purposely bringing this here in order not, number one, so that Yaakov hears it. Okay? Maybe there's an element of Yaakov understanding and remembering what happened to Yishmael and Yitzchak and everything else and knowing that Sarah that's what has to be done, okay? Even if it means some slightly questionable ethical behavior, but I also think it's for us the reader more than anything, okay? Because as the reader, we the, 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 the words ring in our minds, especially if we know the whole Torah back to front and off the tip of our tongue like they did in ancient days before they had the written text, okay? Immediately when they hear this, they will, we, as the reader, should immediately be reminded that the last person, the last time we heard that phraseology was in the case of Sarah with Hagar and Yishmael. And we will be reminded that Rivka is molding herself on her mother-in-law's image. She thinks and she believes that she has been given prophecy by God and that she has chosen the son and that this is the only way to ensure the survival of the nation. Yeah, in order for Yaakov to become Yaakov, he has to learn to be lover. Lavan, Asab, however you want to say it, okay? And this is what she believes. And therefore, when she turns around and when or when the Torah uses this language, it is for, for it, it's got a threefold purpose. Number one, it's for us, the reader, to remember or to know that she's working on precedent. Number two, it's for Yaakov to recognize that this is the authority speaking and, and this authority isn't just Rivka, but God himself. And number three, and this is what we, this is, I think, also very important, it's for Rivka. It's for Rivka in order to justify her own actions. 
Okay, I am doing nothing more and nothing less than what my mother-in-law, Sarah, did. And she based herself on the clear word of God. Okay, so, so I think all of those are very important. Let's continue. Um... Okay, he, she says, go and get the G'dayizim. Now listen, this word, G'dayizim, okay, comes up again and again and again and again in the life of Yaakov. Okay, give me examples of where. Firstly, that's the most obvious one, right? Yosef's coat, the greatest act of betrayal, okay, is, is dipped in the blood of the Gdizim. Where else? With Laban, okay? If you look at all of the narrative with Laban, it's all about the Zim, right? He swaps, and who's the one doing the, the Miramar there? Who's the one doing the betrayal there? Yaakov, Yaakov and also a bit of Lavan, okay, a bit together, right? But what we're going to see is that this is a, it becomes a kind of paradigm that follows Yaakov his whole life, okay? Sorry, one second. Again, if you notice how many times the word comes up again and again and again and again, okay? So bring it to him so he can bless you before he dies. He turns around. Now listen to what Yaakov does here, okay? And this is why I said, I don't, I think Yaakov tries his very hardest, his very best, okay, not to do it, okay, he turns around and he says to his mother, but hold on a minute, let, okay, let's just, you know, let's, uh, let's catch ourselves up here, okay, he is hairy and I'm, I'm halak, right, what's going to, okay, maybe my father's going to feel me, Okay, fill me out or whatever, and he'll know that I'm not who I am, and he's going to bring me a, he'll give me a klala, a klala, not a bracha. Okay, v'tomeloim, um, v'tomeloimot, alai Okay, let your curse, let the curse be on me. Achshamabakoli, but again, the same word. Listen to my voice. V'lech kachli, and go and get it for me. Okay, and again, the way it's written here, there's two things that it reminds you of. Number one, it's very, like, he's, he's doing it, he's, he's uh, obeying exactly as she says. Duh, duh, duh. Okay, he did, he did, he did. But it, what else does it remind me of? It reminds me of what Asav does, the same thing Asav does after he sells the birthright. If you remember, you can go back to source one, okay? Okay, these very active, like, verbs, right? Right, it's the same, same feel. In many ways, already by beginning, by doing this, he already begins to take on the personality of Asav. Okay, from the beginning. 
ותעשימו מטעמים כאשר אהבביו, ותיקח רבקה את בגדי עשיו בנה הגדול, החמודות, אשר איתה בבית, ותלבש את יעקב בנה הקטן. Hey, I think every word here is important, we don't have time to get into everything, right? Um, ואת עורת בגדי העזים הלבישה על ידיו ועל חכת דבריו, ותיתן את המטעמים ואת הלחם אשר עשתה ביד יעקב בנה. Okay, so he, she puts it on his arm and she gives him the food, ויבא אל אביו ויאמר אבי, ויאמר הנני מי אתה בני. Okay, now this word הנני is a word that comes up where? In the Akedah. Okay, clearly it's very reminiscent of the Akedah, and in a minute I'm going I'm going to Uh, read you something that I wrote on it because I really uh, to me the word Hineni is, is the central key here and it also comes right in the center of the text as well okay and he says my father and he says my father he says here I am Hineni and again the, the response Hineni here is the response out of the mouth of Yaakov of sorry of Yitzchak okay ויאמר יעקב אל אביו אנוכי עשיו בחוריך עשיתי כאשר דיברת אליי קום נא קום נא שבה ואכלה מצידי בעבור תברכני נפשך. אוקיי? And Yaakov comes to him and he says to him, listen, I've done what you've asked, I bought you, come, sit up, eat, so that your soul will be blessed. ויומי יצחק אל בנו, מה זה מהרת למסור בני? And now again, even this phraseology is very interesting. What did you rush to find? Okay, there's a sense here of, again, the instant versus the process that he knows Yeah, Esav, you know, he goes and he hunts and he hunts, but this is really quick. Okay, how can this be so quick? Right? Um, and again, the question here is also very interesting. Why does he say, come to me, let me feel you? Okay, is it because he's blind? Is it, what, what is it? What, what pulls him to want to feel him, right? Maybe his answer they've got... Yeah, on the other hand, if you look earlier, it's interesting, because if you look earlier, Asaph um, uses God's name quite often. Okay, so I, wouldn't, I, I did originally think that, but then I looked back and I saw that that's not always the case, right? Hata zebani Asaph imlo, right? He says, are you my son Asaph or not? Or are you? Right, there's definitely a... Chashash, right? There's definitely a, a suspicion here. Um, I've lost the place. Hold on one second. Chafetz. Uh, I found it. Okay, well, obviously one of the most famous sentences, right? He, he, Yaakov um, goes close to Yitzchak. Yitzchak feels him and he says to him, your voice is the voice of Yaakov, but your hands are the hands of Of and, and again, here, if we're looking at it from a psychoanalytical point of view, I mean, you can go to town on this, right? As in, I mean, there's so many places. It's just, it's, but the, the whole, uh, you know, and it's been taken in so many different contexts and so many different ways. And to say that in many ways, sometimes we have to have the hands of Esau, but we have to maintain the call of Yaakov. It goes back to what we've been speaking about, about pragmatism versus morality or, you know, all of these things or survival or whatever it is. What does it mean to be, to integrate elements of Esau and elements of Yaakov? What does it mean to have the hands of Esau, but the voice of Yaakov, right? And what does that even entail? What does that mean? What kind of person do I have to be? And I'd say even let's go one step further back than that. Okay? What does it mean to integrate? Okay? What does it mean to be a human being that is able to integrate? The ability to integrate is not simple. Right? It's not halak. 
right? And these are all things we're going to touch on. So I just I just want to bring view, a few questions up now. When he didn't recognize him. And again, the text here is very specific in telling us. It's very explicitly telling us that Yaakov was not recognized by Yitzhak. Yitzhak didn't recognize Yaakov. The text tells us that. Okay? So we could argue, you know, there's many people that argue, well, Yitzhak actually knew it was Yaakov. Right? But the text here is coming to tell us. Now, again, we could say, is the text coming to tell us so that we understand? Because the, we want, what, what really, what's the purpose here of the text? What is the purpose of the narrative here? That's really what we're trying to get. Is the purpose of the narrative to tell us that Yaakov was wrong? Rivka was wrong? That what they did was not right? Is the purpose of the text to tell us just what happened? Okay? Yitzhak didn't know. This is what Rivka did. Is the purpose of the text for us to feel empathy with Esav? Or is the purpose of the text for us to feel empathy with Yaakov? Okay, arguably, I think it's all of these things, right? But what, but what the text is saying to us here is, or seems to be telling us is, that Yitzhak was stooped. Okay, meaning there was clearly what the text wants us to understand. That Yitzhak was not was not a player here. That Yitzhak was deceived. The text wants us to understand that Yitzhak. Because if we argue that Yitzhak knew, then maybe that makes Rivka and Yaakov's act not as bad. Okay, but the text here wants us to know that Yitzhak had no role to play in this whole event. He was deceived. He was simply a passive person that was deceived. Okay. Why is that important for us to know? Why does the text go at length to tell us Yitzhak did not recognize Yaakov? Because what the text wants us to understand is even if he had a doubt, which it's clear he did from what he says, right? What the text wants us to understand is, actually I'd say it this way, what the text wants us to do is grapple with the consequences of this situation. Which means what? It means grappling with the seemingly very unethical behavior of our forefather and our foremother. It means grappling with the consequences of what this, of what this does to a sub, which we're going to see in a second. And it means grappling with the fact that on the one hand, as the reader, we see that this was an act that needed to be done in order for Yaakov to become who he becomes. And yet, at the same time, it was an act that caused an immense amount of suffering. So how are we meant to reconcile all of those problems? Let's continue. And again, even more so, maybe, even more so what, what the text is doing here is showing us that because Yitzhak may have suspected, it meant Yaakov had to even deceive even more. Right? He had to explicitly say, no, it's... He says, are you really a sub? And he says, I am. Okay? Again, we can argue, and this is what the, I would say, the more apologetic interpretation argues, which is what? He didn't really lie. Because what he doesn't say, Ani b'ni sub. Ani bin chai sub. He says what? Ani, I am. Okay? 
For sure, I'm not on that side, but I'm just telling you that you can justify it. If you want to justify anything, there's a way to justify it. But I would say even more than that, that I need here is it's semantics, but it is and it isn't, right? That I need here to me is is very much goes back to this exist this existentialism, right? When he says I need, I am, I am being. Right? I am being. I, I don't know what I am. And that question of I am, Ani, who is Ani? That's, that's really what he's saying because he doesn't say Ani Esa, but he doesn't say Ani Yaakov. Who is the Ani here? And this is the moment of transformation. Okay? This is the moment that Yaakov changes. And he, all he says is Ani. The Yoma Yigisha Liva Ochlamit Said Beniv Laman Tibrachecha Nafshi. Okay, so he says, come, bring me the food, um, and I will eat, and you will be blessed, uh, and I, sorry, my soul will be blessed, and he brings, and he brings him the food, and he eats, and he, and he, and he drinks. The Aviv, He says, come near to me, so that I can kiss you. Okay. He comes near to him, he smells the smell of his clothes, and he blesses him. What, who does Yitzchak think this is? He thinks it's Esav. And therefore, what bracha does he give him? He gives him the bracha of the Sadeh. Okay, he doesn't give him the Bechorah. He does not give him the birthright. He gives him the Bracha of the Sadeh. Listen to what he gives him. Okay, what blessing is given to Yaakov here? The blessing of a sub. What is that blessing? Look what that blessing is. That blessing is the blessing of the immediate, of the instant, of the expedient. Okay? It's materialism. It's the blessing of the dagam, the tirosh, and everything that the field can give you in the now. There's no long-term gain here. Okay? It's to be strong. It's, it's all of that. Okay? Vihi kasher. And here we get to the part, the heart, I really would call it the heartbreaking part of the narrative, right? What happens after? Okay, so the deceit has been performed, everyone's got what they needed. Yaakov thinks he's done what he needed to do. Rivka thinks she's done what God wants her to do. Yitzchak thinks he's done what he needs to do, which is to bless Esav with the blessing that is matim for him, that is right for him. Okay? And then everything is turned on its head. Then everything comes to light. And what happens? All of a sudden, right? Esav comes out from the field and he brings, he also brings these delicacies to his father. Okay, so it's a repetition, right? Come, Father Eve. Okay, you, I, I mean, again, this would make an amazing drama because it really is dramatic, right? The other son comes in from the field, 
right? And he says to him, by the way, it's fascinating because a lot of, uh, there, there is, I can't remember who it is that speaks about the idea that a lot of um, myths and, and mythological stories come from this template. There's this template of, of the deception of the brothers, of the argument, and the template of Kaim Vahevel. All of these templates, they act as templates for a lot of the stories that come later, okay? But again, so, so it is a drama, right? His brother comes in from the field, right? Um, now again, it's interesting here that he adds in the Bechorecha, okay? Even though he has sold it, He's, he, why does he say here, I'm your, your eldest? Because he's just gone and done what he sold to do. Meaning, he sold his responsibility to go and make food for his father and his family. He gave it up because I'm going to die tomorrow, so what do I need that on my shoulders for? But then his father asked him a favor, do me a favor, I think I'm going to die, go and get... And, and, and what does Esau, so we can read it in two ways. Either we can see Esau in, in a good light and say, well, his father's going to die, he wants to keep a double M, he feels bad. So for the one last time, he's taken the responsibility of feeding his father on his shoulders. Or we can see it in a negative light, okay, and we can see him as a rush. And we can say, well, he wants to get the birthright, even though he stole it, even though he sold it, sorry. He now sees his father's about to die, and actually maybe, okay, it will be expedient for him now to get the birthright. So he goes and runs and makes something for his father in order for him to... But either way round, what he's just done is to act out the new, the oldest child's role, which is to go and get food. So he turns around to his father, he says, it's me, you're, you're firstborn, I just did what the firstborn should be doing. Okay, Yitzchak And here it goes at length to describe the pain of Esav. He's screaming no evil. Okay, whether he's just a son, whether he's expedient or not, whatever, whatever you think of him, okay, this is the cry of someone that the Torah wants us to pay attention to. The Torah wants us to pay attention to the cry of Asaph. And the question is, why? Why? If, right, and this goes back to exactly the same question that we had with Ishmael. If it is the right thing for our survival to send Ishmael and Haggai into the desert, and if it is the right thing for our survival as a nation to basically trick Esav out his birthright. Why does the Torah need to tell us about their suffering from it? Why do we need to know that they're suffering? And that is the question here. Because the answer is clearly that the Torah is, 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 is forcing us, coercing us even, to feel the suffering. It's almost impossible, right, to ignore it. Okay, and I'm going to leave that here on a cliffhanger, with not such a cliffhanger, because you kind of know the answer already from when we did it with Hagar and Yishmael. But it goes back, and, it, and the answer is essentially going to go back to exactly this exact question, dialectical tension that we're talking about. On the one hand, of the pragmatic sense of we have to do what we have to do, and on the other hand, of the Torah saying, yes, but don't ignore the consequences of your actions. Okay, does someone just have a pen I can use just to... Yes.